um, it was part of the fiction. If you played a certain tune on the flute, Dr. Mastaba knew that his mind screw of you had worked, right? He knew that it had taken because you would know you would automatically play this exact tune. And that's how he tested whether his, his uh, subject had gotten the full treatment. Easily one of the greatest pleasures I had in 2013 was sitting around with Vinny, uh, Danny O'Dwyer, and Drew and playing through Bioforge, which would not probably show up on a lot of classic PC gaming lists uh, or people's all-time favorite origin games, but they would be wrong, and you would be convinced that they would be wrong as well if you'd watched our sort of mini endurance run uh, playthrough of that game. It's weird, it's strange, it's hard, it's crazy, and it doesn't make any sense that it exists. But when you hear from director, programmer, producer, yes, all three, uh, Ken Demarest, who uh, worked at Origin at the time and was basically just tasked with making an interactive movie. The working title of Bioforge was Interactive Movie Number 1, meant to be part of a series, which also included Wing Commander and a bunch of games that didn't get made. It makes a lot more sense, uh, especially way, the way Ken phrases it, that he was a guy focused on technology at the time and kind of just let everyone else do whatever they want. And that explains a lot about Bioforge, I think. So I was really pleased that I was able to track him down thanks to some uh, kind users on the site who either knew him or knew someone that knew him. And we managed to uh, hop on Skype and, and chat for a good long while. We cover all the topics you think you might cover in an interview like this. We talk about walking backwards. We talk about flutes. We talk about why the game is the way it is. And uh, interestingly enough, he actually watched our entire playthrough. I made a premium account for for Ken when I reached out about the interview. And he meant to just kind of check it out and ended up watching the entire thing. So apologies for the lengthy intro, but if you're a premium member... You can go and watch the entire series right now. If you're not a premium member, this might be a great reason to, to check out uh, what we've got on the site. Uh, the original episode actually started on an edition of Unprofessional Fridays back in April. I don't have the date offhand. But uh, with that, I will shut up uh, only to allow myself to talk again. Uh, but on the other side will be uh, Bioforge creator, director, producer, programmer, Ken Damarist. Enjoy. What goes through your head when you start thinking about Bioforge, given that that is now, you know, 2013, well over 10 years ago in terms of when you conceived and worked on that game? Um, what goes through my mind? Well, the, the very first thing was I'm amazed that people are still able to enjoy it in whatever context. Um, uh, you know, this, this many years later, uh, when I looked at it, I watched you guys play it all the way through <laughs> uh, the whole damn thing. Right. Which might've been an ex exercise in narcissism. Right. But since, uh, it, God, the gameplay, oh my God, <laughs> so, 
it's so uh, harsh. Uh, you know, it, it's a, the first thing that really came to my mind was what a testament it is to where we were and how we thought at that time. You know, um, to some extent, it's a reflection of who I was back then. I cared about the technology, and that's really all I cared about. Um, I wanted the game to be great. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I was super pleased with Jack Herman's over-the-top, crazy writing, you know? <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it, it's so, it, it totally, it fits completely. It comes across as, as though everyone on board was a huge fan of, like, the B-movies of the 70s and 80s. You know, playing it, you know, so far removed more than, you know, 10, 15 years, hard to tell if that's intentional or not, given that, you know, just... The, the amount of space that games writing has come since then. But in terms of us playing it in 2013, like super enjoyable. Like it was, it was so much fun and was such tonally uh, was really appreciated given how, you know, kind of how harsh the gameplay was that you had sort of this, this really over the top writing and sort of like incredibly dense mythology that was sort of shoved into all of these like enormous text files and it, it, it provided a really entertaining contrast to to a game that, yeah, like you said, especially in 2013, you know, is is so different than how game a game like that would be designed today in order to make sure the player was, you know, happy and progressing and all those sorts of things that are are so are, are, are incredible parts of game design now, very key to, to the mass market. But this game sort of just said, ah. I can, you're going to get screwed over all the time, and I That's hopefully right. you're let's, okay with let's it. Let's just head hack you. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's just rogue you and whatever. So um, I think if you went and talked to Jack, even all these years later, he would acknowledge that he was camping it up, you know, egregiously. And And with respect to all that text, what I said to him was, you know, just just do whatever you want. Just take it, own it, completely own it. Now, we knew, even back then, that um, huge amounts of text seldom got read because um, uh, Chris Roberts, before he did Wing Commander, uh, did a, a bunch of other games. And one of them was a, well, there was, there was a game where he, there was just tons of text. But the context of that was that you had to read it all because it was all in conversations and dialogues and that sort of thing, right? Right. So the agreement we had was all of that would move into the journal. People could go as deep as they wanted, and I wanted Jack to have the latitude to, you know, really unfold something. Um, and But you know what? Like you guys did, you didn't have to do it. You know that strange ding you were hearing every now and then? It uh -huh. was another journal entry and another journal entry and another journal entry. I, I mean, so, certainly, I think we probably would have noticed that more if we weren't playing it, you know, with a walkthrough that kind of guided us to the next thing. Because I imagine that would have been, you know, the first thing you would have thought of was like, well, maybe I missed something in a journal entry that, you know, provides some context for, you know, either the spot that you're in or what, what you're supposed to be doing next. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it did, of course, give you lots of that. And, but <laughs> you, guys, you guys were doing you know, what you needed to do. And I'm glad you just chose to, to do the walkthrough method. There were a couple times where I was sort of biting my knuckles saying, do this, do this. But <laughs> there were just as many times when I had no idea, actually, what was going to come next. I didn't know. And the number of times that, was it Vincent? Is that, mm -hmm. Vincent died? The number of times he died was just unparalleled. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was epic. 
epic, epic, epic death. So, you know, the, and the flute thing, I, I, I really appreciate the flute. What's, is, was there, was it just us that lashed out on the flute? Like, was that just, or was, was there something to the flute? Can you ever use the flute for anything? Or is it just one of many objects in the game that was just there to add sort of texture to the world? Um, it was part of the fiction. If you played a certain tune on the flute, Dr. Mastaba knew that his mind screw of you had worked, right? He knew that it had taken because you would know you would automatically play this exact tune. And that's how he tested whether his, his uh, subject had gotten the full treatment. Okay. I, I, lo I loved it that actually then uh, some Giant Bomb uh, fans actually have then now taken that flute sound and are like trying to transpose it into all sorts of different games where you can, you know, code your own little music. Like people are trying to get into into Animal Crossing, a game for the 3DS and and stuff like that. It was just one of those one of those things that we weirdly latched onto. And the and the death animations were another one too, which is also part of what made the game's unforgiving nature kind of fun because you wanted to see what the hell else they had come up with. I mean, the times when the character would get thrown at the screen and just really over the really over, over the top nature, which in sometimes felt in contrast to these sort of like really, you know, what had happened to this guy and what this doctor was doing was pretty screwed up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we really enjoyed those death animations and definitely tried to see as many of them as possible. Yeah. It was fun that making that sort of juxtaposition of how grim, I mean, the story is ex extremely grim. Um, I, I don't want to name specific real-world events that it's like, but it, it's it's like the kind of bad things that can happen in the real world and then pushes it so much farther, right? So <laughs> I, I think the only way to swallow that kind of thing is with the campiness pill, if you know what I mean. Sure. Um, otherwise, you know, you're going to end up with a, a Schindler's List. And although I do believe video games are art, I don't think that anyone was or even now is ready for a game to try to take on that kind of topic. It just, I know that some people have done it, especially on places, especially on places like Congregate mm -hmm. uh, and, and a couple others where they do these short set pieces in Flash or sometimes now HTML5, um, but it's very, very tricky territory. Uh, I, I want that kind of art to exist, um, but games are for entertainment. And so it's kind of a, a hard call to figure out exactly how to pull it off. But I love the concept of games as art. I do believe that they're art. Um, I also believe that the tools that we have to make that art um, are not as wide-ranging as, um, as physical art has these days, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, on the other hand, we have almost all the tools that the movie guys have. So if you can consider a movie to be art, computer games could conceivably go there. They haven't for the most part, and, and nothing has ever risen to the level of, for example, Schindler's List, you know, or, or, or anything like that in, in the game industry. We have drama, but we can't, the industry has not managed to touch people's hearts at, at the same level. Now, having said that, we touch people in ways that movies never can, 
right? Because you're there and it's interactive. So that's a lot of words to say. Um, I love the idea of game of games as art. You know, you mentioned that the game was sort of a reflection of sort of who you were at the time, the kind of designer you were, the kind of programmer you were. Like, what what would you or what would you describe yourself in that period, or how how do you look back on that period? I know you said that you were very technologically focused, and that you know reflects certainly in a lot of the advancements in terms of the modeling. And I guess what is it, the flock of birds that you guys came up with in order to to actually create the the character models for the game? Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, it was all about uh, the 3D rendering. What could we do? We were in a completely new medium. The meme that was going around Origin at that time was interactive movie. What about interactive movies? So I saw that on uh, in a couple of articles written about it that its working title was Interactive Movie Number One, but that then Wing Commander Three, I guess, came out ahead of BioForge. If I'm getting the timeline right, but that it was meant to be part of a series of of games from Origin, you know, using that moniker. That's right. Yeah, that's true. You know, um, for me, it was still all about the code. Uh, I didn't have the deep appreciation of the subtleties of game design that I'd like to pretend I have now, but but I'm, but I'm no I'm no rock star game designer. Um, I know a good one when I see it, but can I come up with it? Not really, you know, not really. I I, I have learned my strengths and weaknesses over the years, and I'm better on the technical side. I'm better on the product side. I'm better on the CEO and CTO side. But I'd go hire someone else to be a game designer <laughs> on any game I created. Um, the Flock of Birds was, was actually quite interesting. At the time, all of the motion capture studios out there would do the capture and then they would post-process the heck out of it. And I thought that that wasn't good enough. So I went and we bought a Flock of Birds and built a real-time system, which no one had, to actually translate directly into the editor that drew the BioForge characters what was happening with the person. Now, the, flock, the, the accuracy of the flock of birds was pretty rough. So, you know, <laughs> it was would, 1993, so... Yeah, their arms would go through their heads and so forth. So, uh, so we had some very dedicated artists who worked very hard to, to try to refine those animations and, and get them into good enough shape. But the truth is the computers weren't really fast enough to do full-fledged animation. Everything had to be done with very stiff hinges at the elbows and the shoulder, especially, you know, the shoulders are the worst case, uh, the hips and, and other joints. Um, and so, you know, the fact that Lex has been transformed into a cyborg and that you meet a lot of robots, people in big suits and that sort of thing. Um, uh, the art director, Bruce Lemons, who did an amazing, amazing job, um, he understood that that's what it would be like. And all the character design, designs were meant to sort of accommodate the limitations of the technology. But we wanted to push it as far as we could. And, and uh, I'm, still, I'm still pretty proud looking at it. I, I look at it and I, I feel like someone derezzed this really nice game. <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't they playing it at full resolution? You know? I mean, it, it, it's definitely, uh, you know, I played a lot of, I can't, I certainly did not beat the game when I was, when I was younger, but I, I've talked to a number of people that were uh, subscribers to PC Gamer, and I remember being obsessed with the demo for BioForge that came on the disc for PC Gamer at one point, which I think had that introductory, that in intro room where you meet the, the the blue creature and you can club him to death with his own arm. And I remember just playing that sequence over and over again because 
when you were contained in that tiny little sandbox and, and that it did that game that game does feel sometimes like a sandbox even in 2013 largely due to the huge amount of combat options that you have of holding control and alt and then be able to use, you know, the entire keyboard in order to, to t- try different moves. Uh, I remember being obsessed with that, that sequence. And I can't even, I can't even really say if I ended up purchasing the game and playing further because I got so much out of that tiny little room and how much you could do within it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, it, it warms my black heart to <laughs> that, that, that people actually enjoy the game. Um, I don't think that the sales were ever particularly sterling, you know, recognizing the challenges in the gameplay uh, that I that are epically clear uh, in the playthrough. Uh, I know it's clear why it didn't sell very much. Having said that, it, if the gameplay had been remedied, and I think that there are just a few things that would go an incredibly long way, um, I, I think it could have done better in the market and i think more even more people would have enjoyed it but i'm super happy that um even that small demo took with you and and with the people that it did take with um you know computer games should exist for for people to get pleasure well i I think part of the appeal uh i mean i think you're right i think yeah there are like fairly in in hindsight obvious tweaks that could have made it maybe more palatable but part of the reason like the game was so much fun to play even now was due to all the rough edges and the randomness and the weirdness and the fact that it you know, felt like it was just made so that it could exist and not to the concession of anything else. Like part of that's the appeal, and I think that's why people that watched it and when we played it, that's part of what was the fun was kind of seeing what was around every corner because it was clearly a labor of love. Like A game like this wouldn't have existed without people who really wanted to make it. Like It, it felt like a game that came out of, was definitely a reflection of the people who made it and not, hey, there's a market reality that, that we want to cater to. Yeah, Bioforge gave me my first gray hair. <laughs> and and it, was my, it was my first really epic failure as a manager. Because you were, you were uh, uh, was a director, a producer, and a programmer on the project all at the same time? Yeah, I, I started this thing up with another fellow named Tony Bratton, who eventually forked off and started making his own project. Um, and he thankfully did a lot of the 3D stuff because I, I'm just not talented enough to do much of that of that work. And luckily, I had other team members who came on and, and helped me with that. Um, but you know, I wrote huge swaths of that thing, and it, it was a labor of love. But it turned out to somewhat be a labor of pain because for me, it was a huge learning process. I went from guy who didn't understand how to manage a team properly. You know, to to guy who recognized he had a problem to fix. Over the next next eight years or so, worked very, very hard, right, to to reshape myself. So it's interesting, though, because I'm super proud of what came out of it, even though there there was excellent glory coming out of that thing when we were doing the Flock of Birds recording. You know, people were very proud of it. There was um, exquisite pain that came out of it for me. As I learned, I was less than perfect. Hmm. <laughs> Expected that, you know. Um, it's a very memorable time, though, in in my life, and it was a labor of love. Ultimately, um, one great thing that people got on that project was because I wasn't an artist and I wasn't particularly a designer. People had a relatively free hand on that, mm. you know? and and huge kudos to them for what they managed to do. Um, I, I I loved making Bioforge. It was a real pleasure. So what you know. 
what was the original, you know, I know it was called Interactive Movie 1, but, like, was that as much of a mandate as you got? Was just go make a thing, and it's supposed to be influenced by cinema, and this is part of the direction that Origin's going in? Like, what were the initial conversations about what this was even going to be? Um, the, the original concept was go make an interactive movie. <laughs> and that's it? That was it. Go define what interactive movies can be. Uh, go do it. And so for the, for the start of that, um, that's pretty much all, you know, me and Tony uh, just doing it and making it happen, you know. And then gradually we brought on Bruce. Um, we brought on some designers a little too late. <laughs> we just made their transition from QA. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, it is what it is, right? Everyone, everyone back then, uh, how many designers could I have hired? Yeah, you're, you're right. Designer was not, you know, there wasn't a digipen, uh, there weren't like, you know, there were way less paths back then. You got through, you know, you got through design by, I mean, QA is a pretty common path for a lot of designers back in that day. It was, you yeah. proved that you knew the language of games, even if there wasn't necessarily a degree to go along with it, which certainly didn't mean anything back in, in the 90s. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely true. Um, so I'm, I'm sure I was working around to some other point. What, what, what in particular were you asking? Well, I, so, so, you know, you get the told to go make an interactive movie, figure that out. So, like, what's step one there? Do you guys just start watching films to kind of, like, did you have a touchstone that you were looking towards, or did you already have something in mind once you were sort of given, here's this broad... I mean, because interactive movies are a really broad topic, you know? Yeah. Clearly, compared to Wing Commander, like, Bioford swings in a completely different direction and approach to that. So, so what did you pull from, and then how did that start leading into, you know, the, the Bioforge as a game? So, we did do... A little research on in two major areas. One of them was we went and looked at story arcs, and I actually was an English major and and, and did a, a bunch of writing, and so I was very interested in making sure we told a story that sort of hit fired on all cylinders. Mm -hmm. So there's some good backstory there. I'm 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 proud of that. You know, um, it's a world that is pretty fully imagined. You know, you go through the arc and, and eventually discover the alien race, and, and that unfolds, I think, in a pretty a pretty, pretty decent way. The other really big one was jump cuts um, and, and, and camera work. We researched camera work and had to wrestle with the fact that, you know, we had finite resources to make enough cameras and enough angles, and that we weren't going to fly the camera through the world. Um, our preference would have been to make the camera fly through the world. But it was technologically impossible at that time. You'll notice that Doom flew the camera through the world and had cardboard cutout characters. We had the awesome characters and the fixed rooms. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, that, that was, that's the comparison. So um, their mode of game allowed really fast motion, fantastic FPS play. Ours, we knew, had to be about telling a story, right? And that's what—that's really what we tried to do. Um, was was unfold the story with that that way of doing it. And and interestingly enough, um, Carmack, after Bioforge came out, Carmack put me on his tech guru email list. <laughs> he's way more tech guru than me by far. Um, but he took, put me on that because we had solved the character problem while he had solved the the world problem. And so because of sort of that 
what you guys wanted to do technologically, did that then dictate sort of like the pace of gameplay design in terms of like, all right, it's going to be a character that moves very slow. He can't get across this world very fast. So, okay, well, the way the combat's going to work is going to, he's going to be kind of like a tank, uh, which, because that'll slow the character down and allow us to focus on having sort of set pieces and moments sort of fixed into rooms. Yeah, so that's all true. I, I think we were one of the earliest games to do in-game movie scripting. So when you saw those cutscenes, they were completely in the game engine, mm-hmm. and they were written with a script that I whipped together to position characters, make them run animations. And, you know, when Dr. Mustafa was doing this... <laughs> those, you know, some of my favorite moments. They're <laughs> hilarious. They're so great. They're yeah. really endearing. That's uh, that's probably the best word for that game, is it's very heart, and it has a, it's very endearing. Like, you... You, it's really hard to not love it for for those moments like that because it's just you can't help but smile. It's just so goofy. Yeah, yeah, it is so goofy. And the the guy, the poor guy lying on the table who asks you to kill him, you know, <laughs> he's got his little scripted head turn animation, and then up pops his galbay. You know, when you guys actually chose to kill him, it put you on a certain path. All of those characters that you saw at the end on that computer. Mm-hmm. Those are the people you could have turned out to be. And right. depending on the choices you made in the game, you became an origin was chosen for you. So if you just kill absolutely everything, you your origin is, well, you used to be a psychopathic killer. <laughs> right? And and that's that's where why you were experimented on, right? But you can take other paths, you never had to kill him. Uh, and you know, you can you can turn out to be a, a hippie flower child as well if you want to, right? And I th- thought that was one of the more interesting things about the game that was in- incredibly progressive for the time is that it has sort of a built-in morality system, or at least it, it reflects upon the player's choices, but never tells them. You know, it, you know, most games, even today, are very explicit about telling the player, you're making a good choice, or you're making a bad choice. Like, it's, it's the polarity there, I, I hate those style of systems. I, I think that's really cumbersome and ends up leading to the player not making truly formative or honest choices because everyone wants to be the good guy, right? I mean, or you play it a second time and then you see how the bad stuff turns out. You're not making an honest choice about what you want to do in the situation. And although in like that particular instance in Bioforge, um, where you're choosing to kill or not kill the guy, the game, you know, on its face, isn't making a judgment call. Like you're a tortured individual. Like you have good, whatever. You're trying to get off this damn planet, like kill the guy, you know, he's screwed already, but it never says like, Hey, you're a bad dude. I mean, yeah, you get the different, sort of origin story, but that's not like part of the completion screen and says you're a bad guy. And I, I thought that was a really set of interesting decisions that like games are still working out today how to handle sort of morality systems. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I'm going to jump back to um, the prior question a little bit because you talked about the combat and the pace of the combat. And and for me, that is the biggest missed opportunity. Right? The biggest missed opportunity for Bioforge was that there could have been a combat system where the choices you made of move really mattered. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that even after two years and a full team, we didn't have enough time to tweak that and to, and to make it work. Um, I, if, I, if I have any regrets, it's that we didn't find some way to make those choices you know, of move a little bit more meaningful. Well, if that would have meant that you guys removed the backflip, then I don't, I don't know if it would have been worth it. I don't know if it would have been worth it. <laughs> we would have, we would have kept the backflip, and then when the cyber raptor, 
<laughs> when he spun and tried to whack you with his tail, the backflip would have been the move of choice. Sure. Right. Uh, that that's pro- that's pro- that is easily my favorite moment of us having played through that was when he when uh, Vincent pulls up the the text bubble and I just noticed does that say Cyber Raptor and then it cuts you out of that text bubble and then a goddamn Cyber Raptor actually appears and you have to fight it. I guess uh, like I feel like if any moment sort of encompasses sort of the surprise nature of that game, like it is that exact moment of just genuine sort of like what is going on. What is this game? I was super pleased when you guys froze the Scorpion Man and then intentionally went back to, just so you could see him uh, alive, but instead you got the uh, surprise of being hurled towards the distance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we built that thing and we all looked at animating it and said, yeah, no, that's not, that's not happening. <laughs> and, and were we crazy or was it actually faster to walk backwards than it was to walk forwards? Uh, I would characterize that as a design flaw. <laughs> that ended up being our go-to thing was like having having Lex moonwalk his way through all the scenes in order to get past you know the mechs a little bit faster. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, just as far as design flaws go, though, put it on the list and a put it on the list and b it helped you guys, right? And yeah, you had to wait to get certain things done. So felt like a cheat. Just don't tell anyone. Well, that that would be patched out of a modern game. Well, you know, I, I played. I remember when Ultima Nine finally came out. I had actually left Origin by then, but but when that thing came out, I played it like I play most Ultimas, which is I try to hack the AI of the enemies to get an unfair advantage, because <laughs> that's the kind of player I am. You know, I still remember in Ultima Three, there was one place filled with awesome treasure chests, and they would um they would respawn every time you entered. The, this particular town and if you walked in just the right way the guards would not catch you with all of that booty as you left the town right <laughs> and i died many many times trying to find the magic formula and finally found it and then for me that was very satisfying i'd come up with a hack this is why i'm a programmer i'd come up with a hack that had accomplished a goal that i thought was awesome and i was super pleased with myself right one of the one of the things that that was really impressive about the game that i thought also thought was really strange for a game of that era was uh, sort of the physics that occur with the backgrounds. Like, you know, you have these static backgrounds um, or th- that you're interacting with, um, but you're actually able to bounce the lasers off. You know, and actually, that's, you know, the, the only way to get through some of the sequences, like the elevator sequence when you come up, especially when we had, I think, like one hit and we were constantly killing ourselves by bouncing the lasers incorrectly. But even though, we, I mean, it was really funny, but it was also really interesting for a game to actually play with physics in that way, which certainly felt like that must have been new at the time. It, it, it was completely new at the time. Um, that was just another pile-on of new technology. You know, when, when, they, when we sat down as a, as a group and, and said, listen, you know, what do we want to make next? And interactive movies were what came up. I really took seriously the idea of pioneering that genre. And I felt, I wasn't correct about this, but I felt that pioneering the technology was the most important underpinning. The truth is that pioneering the gameplay was far, far more important, but uh, I couldn't see it. So with respect to pioneering the technology, yeah, every box in the game, every room in the game actually had a not-to-be-seen rectilinear edging to it, right? 
Um, and we were bouncing the pieces, the polys off of that rectilinear edging. And actually, I, I remember writing that code. It, it was it was difficult. Um, I took triangles. I, I used actual pieces of the texture map from the original critter. I spun them arbitrarily, and I bounced them off of the invisible rectilinear walls. And all of a sudden, you had, you know, I remember playing with the gravity. Well, how much should they bounce? And, you know, so on and so forth. It turned out the more spectacular thing was just to fly them all over the place. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was the fun, especially with the fixed camera angles, because you'd often be times in a position to not really judge how you were shooting it, and so it became this like really fun game of trial and error to figure out how exactly that worked. And it, especially when we were only one hit away from dying, it, it just it made it ex- extremely satisfying when you actually finally did kind of get that angle together and it actually hit. Yeah, you know, no matter what we did you really could never tell. You, you just had no idea what direction you were facing. <laughs> I, I remember chewing on that one for a long time, and I think the problem was that we didn't have uh, real-time shadows casting mm. uh, and couldn't, actually, based on the way the, the tech was, have real-time shadow casting. We looked at it, threw up our hands, and said, not, not, <laughs> not on this iteration of the game. We'll go push on other, other technologies. Um, I play games like Neverwinter Nights, for example, where I've got a a third-person character view, and they made the smart decision of kind of obviating it. We made it so that if you were within 15 degrees of pointing toward an enemy, Mm -hmm. we just turned you the rest of the way (laughs) so that you would point toward them. Um, But the truth is you could be within... 45 or 90 degrees sometimes and you still didn't know you know and uh we should have been pretty ruthless about about auto turning you i think um what was because you guys were sort of pioneering this new directive at, at origin when you guys were putting it together like what was sort of the response from people when they would you know kind of come by the desk and see what you guys were working on were you guys sort of like the crazies off doing something completely new and different or or were you just kind of like left alone during that two-year cycle? Um, I would like to have been less left alone. <laughs> <laughs> I, spoken I, spoken I, like a true creative. I, I think that um, there would have been value in getting some more mentorship mm. um, for me and for the rest of the team. They eventually threw their hands up, by the way, and brought in Eric Hyman, who actually knew how to manage people. And and that's where his credit on the game comes from. Of course, I was sour, right? I was sour and resentful about it. But I also had been beaten enough by the problem that I I was actually pretty willing to accept it and say, yeah, yes, sir, please come in and you know save me from myself. Um, we were fairly left alone. Uh, you know, when people saw it, so there were some interesting reactions. One of them was when we went to E3. One, there was at least one magazine that gave us best in show because our graphics were better than almost any game at the time, I would say. Um, And so that was a huge pleasure, you know. By the time we came out, we were still the first game, to my knowledge, no one's ever shown me another one, that did fully 3D texture-mapped characters and we were using Quaternion to do all the all the arms and stuff like that. And so we got some pretty favorable responses from that. I think the reviews at the time were sort of in the 87 to 92 range. Um, 
but man, they must have been really forgiving of that gameplay, right? Yeah, but I think that's a lot of that games of that era, right? I mean, like the the sort of sort of modern, much more handholdy design, like is is a product of probably the last ten years or so. I think. You know, and people just were spending much more time and much more forgiving, especially when you were making something that was different. You know, it was sort of hard to judge something too harshly when you can't necessarily look at it and go, well, this is how they should have done it. Uh, you know, that's much easier to do in 2013. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's all true. And, of course, the, the, the meme now for game design, especially on social networks uh, with pioneers like Zynga and, and those other guys, um, you cannot lose the game. It's right. Impossible. Uh, in fact, the real meme is you will never have a setback. You will only progress more or less rapidly. Right. And you will follow what I call the, the, the Tetris reward cycle. So if you decompose a game like Tetris, you can see that every time you get a new piece, it's a small reward. And that happens frequently. Mm -hmm. Every time you fit a piece, it's a slightly bigger reward, but it happens slightly less frequently. I, I mean, a good fit. Every sure. time you remove a row, even less frequent, but an even bigger reward. And the same thing for clearing a level, the same thing for getting the highest score you ever got, and so on and so forth, right? A wing Commander broke down into that perfectly, right? And its reward levels were, I shot, I hit, I finished the mission, I, got, I upgraded to a new ship, you know, I won the game, blah, blah, blah. Right, right, right. Right? Um, so that that kind of um, that kind of reward system still exists in in the modern games, but now they're layered over with this "you will not really be allowed to fail" um, motif, and I would contrast that with Minecraft. So Minecraft is clearly much more a game for for geeks, right? I think it's only sold maybe fifteen million, a mere fifteen million, <laughs> right? And kids, uh, and, you know, and what's interesting about that game is that, you know, you're right that most social games that are, you know, essentially for the mainstream or for a larger audience, uh, and yet Minecraft, a game that has no real explicit goals and does have a fail state, you can you can die, but it's it's of little consequence, and you just kind of start over and start building again. You know, that's the game that has proven, you know, essentially Legos for a whole new generation of of game players. And yet, if you were going by, you know, if Zynga was to make Minecraft, you know, it would be a much different game. A, a very, very, very different game. And, and this, this is the point I'm getting toward, which is almost everyone plays Minecraft and is killed by zombies the first night. Right. Right? And that will do one of two things to you. It will either turn you off of the game and you'll leave and you'll never understand the incredibly deep rewarding parts of it. Uh, or it will piss you off, <laughs> right? And by having a setback, you will be inspired, right, to learn whatever it takes to not have that happen again, right? And I think that that's a, it speaks to people's character, and not everyone has that character. It's very clear that the mass market doesn't have that character, right? But people who pro – programming is full of frustration, for example – and in fact, the act of creation is full of frustration, right? So I think that creative people will will latch, for example, more onto Minecraft sure. um, than, than onto, onto uh, the, the more modern gaming style. Do you know that when Farmville started to run out, Zynga moved 90 million people off of Farmville in a matter of 30 days 
over to Cityville. They, yeah, for, they for migrated those accounts. And that, that was people actually logging on and playing and voluntarily signing up for Cityville because they love Farmville so much. Right. Three million people a day, right? Um, but of course, back when we were making games, if you sold a couple hundred thousand, it was flabbergasted. <laughs> that was amazing. Um, and, and that meme, that, that mass market meme, is what it takes. It's very clear. That's what it takes to, have an, you know, to be able to have 90 million people playing your game. Uh, and you know what? I will always be the one who wants to die. Right? If there's nothing at stake, why am I playing? And here I am doing a, yet another startup. We've just closed our seed round. You know, if there's nothing at stake, why play? So what, what are you up to these days? Because I know, I know you haven't you haven't been explicitly involved in sort of traditional games for for a while now, if I'm if I'm correct. Yeah, that's true. the The last one I did was I was CTO of Arcadia Entertainment, and um, Arcadia was trying to make massively multiplayer online games for the Facebook crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out you only need two D graphics. <laughs> you, it's true though, right? Right. Right. And it costs a third. I mean, those games cost a third or less as much to produce. Um, so, you know, the funding ran out on that one, unfortunately, before we were ever, ever able to really find out whether we could hit that crowd properly, but others have tried and it's just not mass marketing. 3d is not very mass market. I, I think that's one of the interesting lessons learned. Um, you need it to be dead simple to play. Um, so again, you know, not, not really my cup of tea. Sure. And as I saw the market moving more and more in that direction. Um, you know, that, that inspired me to, to find new things that would, that I found interesting. So what I'm doing now is called appsoma.com and appsoma makes it easy for scientists to process the enormous amount of data that they are now seeing, especially in areas like genomics and proteomics, where they're either studying the human genome or they're sampling drops of blood or your saliva to see what your body's proteome looks like. They can, for example, tell you whether you've got liver cancer without opening you up, biopsying your liver, and actually sampling it, and, which is a fantastic advance, right? Mm-hmm. Fantastic advance. Now, I'm not one of the guys who understands all that stuff. <laughs> right. right? I, I deeply respect the guys who do. They are brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scientists, but they're scientists first, and they're coders a very, very distant second. Sure. Right? And why... Why should they have to trouble themselves? I'm sure they're using all their neurons to remember, you know, the, I don't know, tens of thousands of pathways we've discovered, you know, for how proteins function in the body. Um, and, and if I can help them move along faster to do some of the society transforming things that, that they're now in the midst of doing, I'd be very happy to do that. And that's what Absoma does. Um, a human genome can be up to four terabytes in size. A drop of blood, all the proteins get to be about 30 gigabytes in size. Um, you know, in the old days, a good-sized hard drive. And um, Apsoma helps scientists process that data. It gives them an online IDE so they can do coding more easily. It helps them manage the data. It helps them use uh, public or private cloud resources or grid computing, which a lot of the supercomputer uh, clusters have, uh, or even just any machine, they can install the little Absoma daemon, and bam, it's it's hooked into the network. And the thing that I think I'm most proud of is someone can do work at one university, 
or commercial institution, share it with anyone else and it's guaranteed to run. Um, and so the sciences, because they're, they're, they don't know things like, um, there's a concept in programming called version control, right? Mm -hmm. um, if, because they don't know some of the things like that, to be able to just give it to them and have them not have to worry about it and not have to learn it um, moves them along much faster, and I'm very, I'm very proud of that. So do you have any, any itch to go back to games at some point, or do you think at this point that's, that's sort of something you've left behind? Well, I have to finish playing out Absoma, of course. Sure. But uh, having said that, there's clearly a game that needs to be created. Um, let me start by saying I have the deepest respect for the Mojang guys. They are, uh, you know, not just clearly a genius, you know, and I'm, I couldn't be more ecstatically happy that he found the new genre that he found. Not many people can say they've ever crafted a genre. I kind of did with interactive movies. Genre didn't go anywhere. <laughs> but I got to do it, right? I also pioneered, by the way, a massively multiplayer online RTS. Right. How many of those are there? <laughs> <laughs> but at least, they, so, ex at least uh, they exist. You can checkbox it. Yeah, right, right. I, I, did the, I did the first one, by the way. How exciting. Uh, I, I, I love the pioneering stuff. So anyway, um, he he came upon a genre, you know, super exciting. But they, after a certain time, they lost their way. Uh, this is my belief. Mm -hmm. um, at least a year and a half to two years ago, they should have shifted all of their resources. Forgive me, Notch, but I, I'm, I have to call it like I see it. They should have shifted all their resources off of trying to make advancements in the game onto making a really easy to install into API. Hmm. The community has made things that are far better than anything that Mojang has produced. And they should have embraced that two years ago. So it's really clear to me that a Neverwinter Nights, you remember the Neverwinter mm -hmm. Aurora tool set? Yeah. Beautiful, amazing piece of work. I, <laughs> I I once traveled around the country in an RV for 18 months with my dog, my wife, and my two-way internet satellite dish. <laughs> and I spent January parked in my parents-in-law's driveway building a Neverwinter Nights mod. I remember people famously saying that a lot of the community content for Neverwinter Nights was a lot better than the actual content that shipped with the game, which is a testament to the tools. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There were some guys that did incredible stuff. I managed to reach the top 10, but then was very quickly driven out of the top 10 <laughs> by people who were better game designers than me, right? Sure. Right? No giant surprise there. Um, but I pushed the technology. <laughs> there you go. Hey, you know, everyone's got their claim to fame. <laughs> anyway, what I'm, what I'm working around to is the game that I would go build would be something that was essentially uh, a Minecraft that opened itself to awesome, awesome community content. Because that 3D block-based world is perfect for everything, right? And um, he's left it sandbox, which is the right choice. Failed to embrace open community API, which is the wrong choice. But if it had been truly embraced, you would see complete redos. You would see um, RTS. You would see RPG. Uh, you, you would see interactive movies. I mean, you'd see all sorts of incredible stuff. Um, 
and and it's an untapped opportunity waiting to happen. Um, I would love to assemble a team uh, for that because Mojang's not going to do it. It's pretty clear to me um, that opportunity is for will forever be left sitting on the on the floor. Uh, so one last thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, so there's some video footage of it on YouTube, and I guess the source code sort of floated up uh, a couple of years back, but there was sort of a BioForge pseudo-sequel, BioForge Plus, in development at some point. Were, were you involved with that at all, or was that something completely separate? No, I was completely uninvolved with it, actually. Um, after BioForge finished, um, I left and started a new company and created that MMORTS that I talked about, which was NetStorm. By the way, NetStorm still... There's still people uh, uh, hosting NetStorm servers. Really? And oh yeah, and play. If you want to go find another completely obscure game <laughs> that, nobody, that nobody really knows about, it's NetStorm, and it's still out there. You can download it for free now. It's essentially abandonware, um, and it will. It's very light on your bandwidth because we built it when modems were still in use. Uh, but it's a graphical, you know, MMORTS kind of thing. The MMO part is gone because no one can really host that. But, yeah, uh, it's out there. It's out there. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't answer your real question. What were you actually asking me? Well, I get, you know, obviously, you know, like you said, you weren't involved in BioForge Plus. But when you finished BioForge, did, like, you know, when, when you finished projects, and I guess this one in particular, did you feel like, hey, there's more to do in this world? Or was that sort of like, hey, we took on this challenge, we did as much as we could in the time that we had. I'm going to go move on to the next thing. I don't need to see what happens next after, you know, you get off the planet. No, I left, I left it as a, a cliffhanger waiting for a sequel on purpose. Mm. Um, I wanted it to become a franchise. Um, however, um, you know, after I left, they handed it off to another fellow. And to me, everything, direction that it was going was the wrong one. Um, I felt really uncomfortable actually having our baby kicked like that. I was very uh, dissatisfied with it, but I was gone and I was doing something new and, uh, you know, that was their IP to do with as, as they wished. Um, I'm relieved that it didn't continue forward. Cool. Well, Ken, I really appreciate you taking some time to, to chat with me today. And I, I think it's hysterical that you watched the whole video. So thank you. Thank you for doing that as well. Well, I haven't laughed so hard <laughs> in a really, really long time. It was great. <laughs>